This is the Star Coach Show with Meg Rentschler, episode 298. You realize that the only way you get into different worlds is through mutual power. You can't force it. You can't make a person transform or make a person talk to you about what's most deeply important to them. You can only do it through a back and forth in which they establish trust with you and you with them, and they're willing to share the truly important things they think and feel, and they don't feel as though you're trying to turn them into a certain specific type of person, but are willing to listen to their struggles. Welcome to Star Coaches, the show for professional coaches that brings you coaching strategies, tools, and resources. Whatever your focus or niche, Take a front seat weekly as industry leaders, decision makers, and innovators share their wisdom and expertise on the ins and outs of successful coaching. Now join your host, Meg Rinchler, as she connects you with your star coaching potential. Hello and welcome to the Star Coach Show. I'm your host, Meg Rinchler, executive and mentor coach and coach educator and With the Star Coach Show each week, we focus on different aspects of coaching. What we're going to focus in on today is the importance of leadership. And the Star Coach Show has a whole pillar of shows regarding leadership and how we can use coaching in our leadership. My guest today is Dr. William Torbert, and we're going to be talking about transformational leadership and the role that inquiry and feedback play in the concept of transformational leadership. I think that leadership is so important. And the reason why I am so invested in making it a part of the Star Coach show is that, you know, over a dozen years ago, I left my psychotherapy practice because I was seeing so many people just tied in knots over their work situation. So many of my clients were coming therapy because of unhealthy work environments. So I made a commitment then to get trained and to figure out a way to get into organizations to help leadership teams create healthier workplaces for their employees. And that really starts with leaders. So my guest today is going to be sharing concepts from his most recent book, Numskull, in the Theater of Inquiry, Transforming Self, Friends, Organizations, and Social Science. We have such a great conversation about the research that Dr. Torbert has done around leadership, around the different behaviors and thought patterns that we enter into leadership with, and how that influences the way that we receive feedback, the way that we can use our questions and our exploration to help people explore and learn as leaders. Now, Bill Tolbert is a leadership professor emeritus at Boston College. He has just a wealth of experience. He's kind of been raised through academia. He shares a story about being a young leader, helping kids stay in school, 
and really fighting against the concept of troubled kids being trouble at school. He really sort of created, well, I'm not going to ruin his story, but he opens with that story and it's such a beautiful story. We have such a good time today talking about what we can listen for, what we can explore, how we can get curious about the elements of leadership and how that moves to a transformational space. I think I could have gone on and on talking uh, to Dr. Torbert, but we wrapped it up to his point, you know, almost not giving the third aspect of feedback because he thought we had run out of time. But no, we stayed and we're, we're talking about three different kinds of feedback loops, so many different perspectives for you to consider regarding leadership in today's show. So I'm not going to make you wait any longer. Let's go to my interview with Dr. Bill Torbert. Dr. Bill Torbert, welcome to the Star Coach Show. I'm delighted to have you here this morning. It's delightful to be here with you and with your audience. (laughs) Yes, and they are a delightful audience. So with that, I would love, you know, we're going to be talking about some really important things today, the developmental transformation that leaders go through. What I loved when I was approached for you to be on the show is the whole concept of inquiry. Inquiry is so incredibly essential to the concept of coaching. So it made sense to like, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what your research has brought forward. As we were doing our pre-interview a couple of weeks ago, we talked about feedback loops and giving and receiving feedback. Also, so key to coaching. So we have so many exciting things to talk about this morning, and I'd love to start with the work that you do. What lights you up about the work that you do? Mm. Well, when I graduated from Yale in 1965, I had the opportunity, because the war on poverty was just starting, to create an upward bound program for high school students. It's a residential program at Yale for seven weeks in the summer to take these kids who would probably drop out of school the next year. They were 16, and uh, many of them were thrown out of school every Monday by the assistant superintendent as soon as they came in the doors uh, because they felt the school would be more civilized without them there. We thought maybe uh, there ought to be a school that would give them a chance. So, And we knew that they were alienated from school and from uh, power and the use of power over them. And so we said, we've got to create a collaborative school. We've got to include the students in the design of the school and the governance of the school. And indeed, we took 60 kids, two-thirds black, one-thirds white, uh, out uh, to a camp for a week outside Yale, where we created the constitution of the school. And it was a wild week. The first few nights, there was no sleeping at all. Uh, everybody, it turned out the kids were scared of the woods and the lake and the sounds of the animals. At first, we just thought they were irredeemably naughty, but that wasn't the case at all. And by being awake 48 hours in a row, we actually established relationships with them and knew them and they knew us. And we did create uh, the whole schedule for the school and the discipline committee with 10 students and five faculty 
So the students had the balance of power on this important committee. And oh, we wow. struggled through the summer with brilliant moments and difficult moments. And we didn't know until a year later that although truly all 60 had been expected to drop out, only three did drop out. And we had cut New Haven's dropout rate in half. So while it, it was an incredibly difficult situation, it also gave me incredible confidence in the notion that this, there's a way of collaborative decision making that is more powerful than unilateral decision making. Uh, because it really does gradually include uh, everybody in the in caring about what you're doing together, and everybody. So gradually, I, I went to graduate school at Yale, and I got a degree in individual and organizational behavior, and consulted to companies, and was dean of the BC Management School, which it came from below the top hundred to number twenty-five during those years because. We created an action effectiveness program, MBA program, which took a, a, a lot of work and a lot of individual attention and group attention to the students, but they did marvelously and loved it and consulted to companies. And we told them, don't just analyze the company, make it better. And so that was the challenge. And they met it time and time again. And in the meantime, I was trying to also argue that the way we do science doesn't help us do, to do action very well. It would be much better to connect action and inquiry directly in the science we do, rather than saying, we're going to do inquiry in an ivory tower, and then we're going to send it out to be practiced by people yes. in the real Go world. forth and do Go what our it. research tells you to do. Yes. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and of course, the research doesn't tell you about all the political intrigue and difficulties uh, of human relations, uh, or they may tell you abstractly, but they don't help you much in terms of learning how to deal with it. And we had really prepared our students through these consulting projects that had to deal with such conflicts. And uh, so that's very briefly what I've done in my life. Wow. <laughs> you know, one of the things that you said early on in that explanation that just really settled with me was that here you're sort of assuming these kids are just being naughty and they're just, this is going to be horrendous. And, and yet when you get curious and you start asking and maybe paying attention, you realize these kids are afraid. They're not used to being out in the wilderness and hearing hoots and crickets and the different things that, and not crickets in silence, crickets in that little chirpy noise that crickets make and all the different things that happen out in the, in the, wilderness that maybe they weren't familiar with. And when you could meet them where they were, and how often is that very thing happening in organizations and mm. happening in our life that we're just assuming this person is acting this way because of X, Y, and Z. And when we can stop and explore, we might learn all sorts of information that helps us engage and helps us collaborate and be in that place of let's work together and make the world a better place or make this organization a better place. So what was it that, that motivated you to write Numskull in the theory of inquiry, transforming self, friends, organizations, and social science, which is, wow, that's a lot of things to transform. <laughs> well, I'm a, a numbskull for thinking I could do it. Uh, <laughs> And uh, the idea of titling the book Numbskull didn't come till very nearly the end. It's sort of my final book. I've written a whole bunch of books that are mostly kind of scholarly, although they are meant to try to reach out to the real world. And this book, I wanted to be much more personal 
And so it's a memoir, and it actually shows how I developed, because after a while of having uh, learned this developmental theory, which we'll come back to and talk about a lot, and asking students to apply this theory to their lives and finding it very revelatory and useful for them, years later, decades later, I thought, hey, maybe this applies to me too. And so it turned out it seems to, of course, we know the dangers of wanting to see something and then seeing it there. But I thought it was the best way I could communicate to other people a series of transformations that anyone can go through if, in fact, they get motivated to do so. And why would one get motivated to do so? And that's, we'll talk about that. Absolutely. So let's kind of dive into the developmental transformation of leaders. And what do you, and you know, the, the whole concept of the theory of, or the theater, sorry, the theater of inquiry. So just like to set the stage, what are some, I know that there's no way in 30 minutes, we're going to get into all the ins and outs of the theory, but what are some of the, the things that as, as you lay out this developmental transformation for leaders, what's really important for us to understand? Well, um, What I wanted to understand was that it was actually rather difficult to work with my faculty at the Yale Upward Bound Program. I found them having more trouble opening up to the students than I had expected. And so my question sort of started as, why is it so difficult for people to accept that another person may have a fairly fundamentally different action logic, as I call it, the sort of framework for their assumptions and actions? than you yourself do. And who gets to the point, because some people do clearly, where they are excited about those differences, interested by them. Versus threatened or or having to make them wrong. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so when I came in contact with developmental theory, which I had not had any contact with at the time of Upward Bound, I thought this is a very promising theory because it shows uh, the different action logics that most adults inhabit and people will recognize these I'll just you know even naming them with a single word gives you a feeling for them so opportunist diplomat expert achiever so those are things we we kind of know some people that are one or another of those things and then the later action logics it turned out very very few people which and it's there from the achiever to redefining where you become open to the possibility that the world isn't the way you first thought it was defined. And so that, and you realize that the only way you get into different worlds is through mutual power. You can't force it. You you can't make a person transform or make a person talk to you about what's most deeply important to them. Uh, You can only do it through a back and forth in which they establish trust with you and you with them, and they're willing to share the truly important things they think and feel. And they don't feel as though you're trying to turn them into a certain specific type of person, but are willing to listen to their struggles. So two important things were that there are these four later action logics, uh, which all use mutual power more than unilateral power. You, You get the ability to use all the kinds of power that are available to each of the action logics. So you have more choice. And you know there are moments when my three-year-old son dashed out in front of a truck from the sidewalk onto the streets. I grabbed him with my arm and hauled him back in without asking any questions about yeah. it. 
We're not going to ask him about his his belief system right now. That's We're right. going to kind of pull him out of danger. Yes. Just to save his life. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are definitely quite a few moments where some kind of unilateral pressure is helpful and needed, but um, you get more and more choice to use the more complex forms of mutual power. And so eventually that became, and then can you create an organization that works more on mutual collaborative power? And so there's a parallel theory of organization development to the theory of individual development, which says something about how to build those organizations. And I worked with such organizations later on in my life. That were more based on mutual power and working together and being more collaborative than unilateral is what you're saying. Exactly. Like Trillium Asset Management, which was the first socially responsible uh, investment fund, not a big organization, 35 members, but it had employee ownership. Every person there was an owner. Uh, It had a a difference between the salary of the lowest paid and the president was a four times difference. As you know, CEOs now receive thousands of times more money than employees do. So uh, its own internal structure was collaborative and its way of working and disseminating uh, and advertising the possibility of doing socially responsible funds um, was highly collaborative. And go into more detail about that, but that's just one example of of a more collaborative organization. Excellent. So when you think about, there are so many different things that kind of come up through your research regarding this ability to grow as a leader, to grow as an organization that are so intertwined with sort of the concepts of, of coaching, whether it's inquiry, whether it's t- doing experiments with your actions and the, the whole concept of the feedback and the feedback loop. So let's, uh, how would you tie feedback into this transformation of leaders, right. where that fits and what that looks like? Well, maybe a way of giving a, a single example to start with is to say uh, that we have developed a measure, the Global Leadership Profile, which measures leaders according to and tells them which of the action logics they're at predominantly. There, no one's 100% in a single action logic. We all, we all sometimes use different ones, but there's usually a center of gravity. And this uh, form of this instrument existed before we came along, but there was never any feedback of the instrument to anybody. It was all just finding out what action logic a person was in and associating that with another variable in psychology and saying, look, we've got an interesting uh, measure to other scientists. But we said, no, 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 we, this is powerful. We want to use this with real people, real leaders. And so, and not only that, but we don't want them to feel like they are subjects of a stamping process where we've stamped them. Or put them in a category or whatever. Put them in a a single category and and said, we're sure this is valid, so don't talk back. So instead, we asked them before they received their score from us, just giving them a paragraph of phrases that were characteristic of that action logic. What action logic do you imagine that you are uh, in uh, predominantly? Let's take a moment just right here to just... 
for anybody who's saying action logic, I don't get that whole concept of action logic. So I want you to continue on the feedback, but I'm thinking that we need to just give a little bit of an understanding of that terminology. Right. Well, uh, yes. The action logics represent sort of fundamental uh, archetypal ways that people think about themselves in the world. So the opportunist um, is someone, and usually their children, who uh, in the six to 10 year age range, who are just gaining control of the outside world. They're running around riding bikes and bouncing balls. And they also treat people as the outside world. My mother has to do this to be a good mother. And my father has to do this to be a good father. And But some people remain opportunists when at all costs. Uh, I'm sorry if I upset some of your audience, but President Trump, former President Trump, is uh, an excellent example of an opportunist. And he's going to win no matter what. So, uh, and that's a w- way of thinking about the world that is actually widely adopted by, by senior executives and Thomas Hobbes, the f- political philosophy uh, for, you know, said that the king has to have complete power over the people in order to keep peace. Uh, so you, the people don't have any rights. Uh, the only right is to stay alive because the king is more likely to keep them alive than if they fight among themselves. So that's a whole perspective on politics, on the world, on oneself, and the diplomat uh, action logic, uh, the idea that kids run into in their early teenage years when they, they want to look good to their friends and to whatever their chosen group is, and they will violate their parents' expectations because the friendship group is more important. And, but they, you know, they kind of have a kind of loss of self because they make other, put other people in charge of, them, of whether they feel good about themselves. And of course, this has become so upsettingly visible through social media and uh, kind of increasing aloneness of people, but they're uh, susceptible to these huge thunderstorms of messages telling them the worst possible imaginable things about themselves. So uh, each of these action logics is a sort of fairly tight ball of assumptions and strategies that guide our action. And to move from one to another involves a double loop transformation. It's a total straight change in the quality of your ego. Your ego changes shape. And in the early action logics, there's a resistance to this because you're, you're afraid you're going to lose yourself forever if you make such a change. And the longer a person remains at one of these earlier stages, the less likely they are ever to move beyond it. Uh, so I don't know, is that, I can keep Yeah. So no, but that helps. So when you're talking about action logic, you're talking about the actions that people take really to kind of, to fulfill the, the way that they're viewing the world, the way that they're viewing interactions, the way that they, so those two, so the actions that fulfill the, the logic that are the, the mindset that we have logic, they themselves may not very well may not realize that they hold that action logic at the beginning. And so being able to accept that that the action logic does describe a lot of your actions is the first step in asking yourself, well, do I want that to continue to be true? Or do I want to explore the next action logic? Because they are successive. Each one is a bigger world than the world before it. 
That's very helpful. So then if we go back to the concept of the feedback, you were giving leaders feedback on which one of those sort of, like we said, categories, but where they fit, what their feed, what they were telling you and how that fit into this picture. Right. And okay, that's helpful. Just to connect it to coaching. So then we wanted, we said, okay, we've got a first person estimate that the person makes about themselves. And we've got a third person analysis, which is also an estimate. It isn't perfectly true. And now if we have them meet with a coach after they've received, they've made their own guess and they've received this feedback, and then the coach can watch what's going on in the session. And if the person says, you know, no, this is ridiculous. I'm perfectly open to feedback of any kind. And then the coach listens and thinks, just a minute, he's rejecting all the feedback here and say, you know, there's a contradiction there. <laughs> and it sounds like he's actually supporting the analysis. So there's second person feedback. And by triangulating between those three types of feedback, you get uh, you know, a process that is going to be quite accurate about where the person is. And then again, the theory opens up to what, what would it mean to experiment with the next level, or are they just entering this level and they really need to consolidate this level before they go on to, to try to transform to the next. So when you say consolidate this level, what kinds of things would need to happen for a person to consolidate this level? Right. Well, every every level has its own panoply of uh, characteristics and competences that need to be learned. So the expert, for example, is completely concerned with the internal validity of the system he or she is trying to create, like a computer program. And we all know that when computer programs go to the market, they always have flaws in them still, even though they've been tested five, six, seven, eight times. Well, the expert will have an unearth to avoid that thing going to market before it's perfect. But the achiever boss is aware that um, in order to find all the rest of the bugs, uh, testing it out in a public setting and finding out how non-expert users use it is absolutely key. So the achiever has this whole world of the market that they are trying to satisfy, not just the internal perfection of the instrument itself. And let's see, what else am I trying to describe? To illustrate with this, <laughs> how, how we consolidate, oh, yeah. like so, before so we can the, move to the next level. Right, yeah, exactly. So the achiever is really learning to seek feedback from a much broader array of customers than the expert is, and that involves you know various skills. First of all, you're you're not only concerned with the internal beauty of the thing. If the customer says, "I can't figure out what this instruction means." You can't just sneer at the customer. You have to try to do some experimenting and find out how. And of course, market researchers can be experts at that. That means a complex theory because you can be an you can really have an expert mindset about uh, satisfying the customer. But in general, it's a move to this achiever who's trying to get results in the real world, not just results in terms of something, a particular machine. Okay. All right. So we were talking about the fact that I'm going to make an assumption here and I want you to correct me, but the the ability to accept feedback, I'm thinking might have to do with like how far up that path we are, because 
I would think an, an opportunist is far less likely to accept feedback than somebody who might be further up that transformational path. That I can confidently say that is true because it's not only true according to the theory, but we did a very specific little experiment where we invited close to 300 people who had taken the test, the Global Leadership Profile, to ask for feedback if they wanted it. And it, and we said, you have to go up to the human resources office and sign in there. In other words, we made the, them have to take a little bit of an action. They yeah, couldn't just it, it, yeah. it wasn't just a, a yeah, little, so, bit of, um, little bit of effort in there. Yeah, exactly. So then a month later, when we got the results, uh, because they took time, we went and we looked at this list and we discovered that none of the people who were uh, rated at Diplomat asked for the feedback. Only one-tenth of the people at Expert asked for feedback. Half of the people at Achiever asked for feedback. And all of the people over Achiever not only asked for feedback, but then during the session said, I want to continue this. I want to learn more about this because I think it's important for, uh, for my future. So we had a perfect 1.0 correlation between, uh, you know, developmental stage and asking for feedback. So, so you're totally right. <laughs> who would have thunk it? So, so with that, we talked about, and I think you sort of referenced this, but I just want to get clear about it. What the, the three different loops of feedback, there's single loop, double loop, triple loop. So let's talk about what goes into each one of those so that as we're thinking about feedback, it just can kind of help us expand right. our knowledge about it. Right. Well, single loop feedback is the most recognizable and common form of feedback. It, and it comes, it, you take an action and it has an effect. Uh, and if it has the effect you meant to have, uh, then there's a little bit of feedback that we call positive feedback. Mm -hmm. Good, we're doing well. But if the effect in the outside world was not what you intended, the first thing you can do is change your action a little bit. Maybe you pushed too hard for the sale and you needed to ask uh, more about uh, what they were looking to buy. So, so you change your action a little bit. You now introduce a little more inquiry into your next session. Double loop feedback is when you change these action logics, these inner structures of the ego, and it, people are much more threatened by the not always threatened, but they are much more likely to be threatened by the notion that they may need to make what I call a double loop transformational change, less likely to be immediately receptive to it. But again, it, as you go through the stages, you become increasingly receptive to it. So the expert will receive single loop feedback, but only from their task superiors, only from the people who, you know, who's a more advanced engineer than he is. They'll take the feedback from them, but not anybody else. The achiever says, no, no, I need to take really feedback from everybody that I'm engaged with, whether or not I agree with their view, it's still having an effect on me. And I probably want to do something to, uh, to change the view. So they're more open to single loop feedback, but it's only as you move to the redefining and transforming action logics that you actually begin saying to yourself, you know, people really have different points of view and I need to find out what my point of view is and I need to find out what their point of view is. And it's not clear that there's any absolute truth. All truths may be relative. 
I can't prove to anybody that my action logic is right. Uh, only if they're sort of interested by it for some reason of their own, will they want to listen a- a- about it. So double loop feedback is usually, it's longer term. To, mm-hmm. uh, it Makes takes, sense. takes many more interventions. Uh, this, the best quick example I can give you is that we measured people in the Boston College MBA program year after year. They entered and 21 months later, they left and we used the GLP with them. And we had hoped that our program was going to transform most of them uh, because it was built on transformational principles. It had a lot of exercise of mutual power. Uh, and when we first, and it cost a lot of money to do this research. Yeah, I was going to say this research was not cheap. Yeah, it was not cheap. Thank God IBM, for some reason, gave us $100,000 to help us out. Thanks, but IBM. at the end of it, we looked at the data and we did not have a significant statistical increase or movement in people's action logic. And, and we, meaning me, <laughs> was incredibly depressed for a few days. Until I thought, let's just see how the students who, after their first year of projects, chose and were chosen to be consultants to the student teams, the first-year student teams in their second year, and who were given an extra summer course in which they wrote their autobiographies and in which they studied tape recordings at that time. You can see how old that was. Uh, studied recordings of our meetings together and how all of us acted in the meetings. Let's see whether they uh, transformed. Boom. We picked up everybody who had transformed were those consultants. So we had an almost perfect definition of how long and hard it is uh, to accomplish a transformation and to what degree the person has to really choose it for themselves, which is what those consultants did. Right. Many of the first-year students came to appreciate the program we created for them, uh, but but they often started very uncertain about it, didn't like having to work on a team, and uh, why should they be responsible for changes in the client and uh, so forth. But as they did the work, they became excited by it and realized they were learning important stuff. But the second-year consultants chose it and then went through more significant intervention. So, and the same thing happened when we later measured whether whole organizations could transform. It's a matter of years, not- Well, it's a matter also of like, not everybody is going to make the same priority, right? So, so your consultants were ones that got excited about that, got fully invested in it, put in and got out of it. And, and I think, you know, for those of you listening, not every client is going to thrive in coaching. You're going to give them the opportunity. You're going to make, set the stage and some are going to throw themselves in a hundred percent and they're going to get so much out of the coaching experience. And others might say, you know what, that was a really great experience. And you know, I did with it what I did. I mean, isn't that just human nature? Not everybody is going to invest at the same level. Right, right. No, that's absolutely true. Uh, And some of them, you know, uh, you sometimes get sort of rich surprises. So I remember one student who was a smart ass, and he was very bright. He was very bright. And he was his, his espoused uh, action logic was opportunist. I, I actually think that was a kind of cover for he was at least an expert internally because he mm. had to be right. 
And he was so contemptuous of our curriculum. And he said, you know, this is not the way the real world works. It's a world of doggy dog and power. And I can't wait to get out there from this namby-pamby program. And he went to interview with the company that he particularly wanted to go. And he said, oh, I'm so glad uh, I learned this because the interviewer was an alumnus and uh, re- eventually reported back to me. And I uh, said, I'm so glad to be with you and get out of this program with all of its bullshit about collaborating and so forth. And the, after about a two-minute self-introduction this way, the uh, interviewer said, thank you very much. But we, in fact, are only looking for people who see the value of collaboration. <laughs> I was going to say, and, talk about shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. He shot himself in the knee, at least. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and so some insight uh, may right. have occurred there, but hopefully. hopefully. So now let's let's ask. So we talked about what what uh, single loop is, then what double loop is. What's triple loop feedback? Right. Well, this is. I thought maybe we'd reach the end of the interview before we got to that. No, I was bound and determined we were we we're going to get to because I don't want my listeners going. But we only got to two of the kinds of feedback. Triple loop feedback is feedback where you realize that there's a question about whether you are achieving your most fundamental purpose. So it's not only a question about how you behaved and not only a question of how you think and create an action logic, but more deep than that, what is, what is your intuitive purpose? And I don't think most people really know, uh, or even if we think we know, it, we may discover at some point that we no longer feel that way, but it's a it's very piercing to receive anything like triple loop feedback, and it's rather hard to characterize it. One of my friends, when I was running the Upward Bound program, said to me, Bill, I find it difficult to trust you because sometimes you act like a monk and sometimes you act like a businessman. And I thought, well, what's wrong with that? I'd like to be both practically successful and spiritually true to something. Uh, but it bothered me. It, it uh, really bothered me. And then I thought, well, what he's saying is you're sometimes one and sometimes the other, and that's not what you want. You want to be both at once. So he's really, he's really highlighted a purpose that you have not yet achieved. So, and I've, rem- as you can tell, because I'm telling you the story now, I've remembered that you know, one sentence worth right. of feedback for the rest of my life. So, and attempted to incorporate that into your being and your transformation and how you show up for well, other that, people, that, because that, that dichotomy was uncomfortable for him. That difference that who, who am I going to meet today? Bill the monk or Bill the businessman? Right, right. And putting them together is what yeah. this phrase action inquiry does the practical action and the spiritual inquiry. So it did become, you know, now I have to ask myself, am I in fact engaging in action inquiry right now? Can I entertain alternatives and move and possibly do something different if it feels like we're not connecting? But it does feel like we're connecting. Yeah, definitely feels like we're connecting. So within that, I would love, I mean, this research that you've done and the work that you've done is obviously, well, it's absolutely riveting. Um And unfortunately, we are coming to the end of our time together today. So anything that is key for people to maybe that you want to be sure that they walk away with just Mm. in the way of maybe summary? 
Well, this isn't quite what you're asking for, but it, what it brings immediately to mind is to uh, say there's only one thing I've ever published that has been wildly popular, and it's a Harvard Business Review 10-page article in 2005 called Seven Transformations of Leadership. So if you're one of the few people in the world who haven't yet read <laughs> that, I love that. article, uh, you might want to look into it. It, it. it just goes into a little more detail about the action logics and so forth. Let's see. What else? What other? Well, and that is a great way for people to kind of keep in touch with your work and keep in touch with you. We're also going to have a link to your book on the, in the yeah. show notes. I just am so grateful for you bringing this incredible work, body of work that you've been doing for decades. You've been working on and refining. And I love research. I love like how things come together and how people respond to the, the feedback they get. So thank you so much for taking well, time out of your day and bringing your work forward. Uh, you are more than welcome. And, and my remaining job in life is to get more people to know about this. And you are now my voice piece today. And so I'm enormously appreciative of this opportunity. I am honored to be your mouthpiece today. So thank <laughs> you so much. I always find it interesting when I talk with people who are so familiar with their own research and so familiar with the patterns that have been established that it their language almost becomes it's like we've got to slow down and say, what exactly does that mean? Or what does that look like? And it made me realize that, you know, as coaches, we want to be careful that we don't get into coach speak with our clients. And I was so grateful to Dr. Torbert for being willing to kind of slow it down and look at, so what do these words from his research mean so that we can look through that lens as coaches? I was just so grateful. So thank you to Bill Torbert for coming on the show, sharing your research with us. If you'd like to know more about Bill and the work that he's done, go to starcoachshow.com slash 298, starcoachshow.com slash 298. Next week, I am so excited to introduce you to Katherine Brown. She is the author of a new book, How Good Humans Sell, The Proven Path to B2B Sales Success. Katherine and I are going to talk about how to embrace selling instead of running screaming from selling, and just some reality about our mindset around sales and the necessity that if we want to have thriving businesses, we need to be able to engage people in buying our services. So that's next week. I certainly hope that you come back and join us. If you are enjoying the show, please consider leaving a rate and review wherever you listen. If you are an Audible subscriber, and you would consider listening to the show through Audible and leaving a review on Audible, that would be fantastic. I'm willing to bet a lot of you are Audible users and there is a, you can access the show now through Audible. I would love for it to get some traction through Audible. So please consider that. So this is Meg Rentschler wishing you the very best for your coaching success, for your joy and happiness. I hope you have a wonderful week and please come back next week as we continue exploring strategies, tools, and resources 
for professional coaches. Have a great week.